0: Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we as we look at your word that was penned so many years ago by the apostle Paul to the church at Rome, this word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit not only for their good but for ours. As we consider the way the church has wrestled with the gospel message, the way that Your servant Martin Luther and the reformers that followed him wrestled with these texts. We pray that you would give us an understanding of your word. That you would help us see the glories of the gospel. You would help us understand that our righteousness is not our own. But that we look to and rest upon and rely upon another. Jesus Christ, and that we would find great joy in Him. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I want to resolve really two problems with the same resolution. There are two problems I see in Scripture um, with regard to the topic that I'm addressing today that, that I want to address with the same resolution, and then I want to come back to Romans 1, 16 and 17. So here's the first Problem. If you will, um, put your keep your hand there, but go over to Exodus chapter twenty-three and verse seven. Exodus twenty-three and verse seven, but keep your hand in Romans. Exodus twenty three and verse seven. I wanna I wanna look at a, a verse that comes up more than once in Exodus, really a statement that comes up more than once in Exodus from God. Here, God is speaking of himself. Listen to what he says in Exodus 23 and verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. Now, notice this. For, don't sin. Why? Because I will not acquit. I will not acquit. In the Hebrew, that word, is sadak. I will not acquit, declare righteous. In the Greek Septuagint, that's the Old Testament translation into Greek that happened over 100 years before Christ came along. In that book, that is the word "dekaio" uh, or, or the word we get justify from in the Greek. I will not acquit, I will not justify, I will not declare righteous the wicked. You hear that? I will not acquit. I will not justify, I will not declare righteous, the ungodly, the sinner. He goes on to say this in more than one place. I will by no means clear the guilty. God's soul abhors those who clear the guilty. So we have that kind of a text where God's speaking about himself, that he is not one who acquits the guilty. Then go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. And notice what Paul says here, interestingly enough. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him or trusts him. Now notice this. Who justifies, who acquits, who declares righteous, the ungodly, the wicked, the sinner. His faith is counted as righteousness. What? What? How can Exodus 23, 7, I will not declare righteous the wicked. And Romans 4, 5, you need to trust in him who declares righteous the wicked. Both be true. Does God declare righteous the wicked or does God not declare righteous the wicked? What is it? Is Paul disagreeing with Moses? Is the Holy Spirit, who spoke through both Moses and Exodus 23, And Paul, in Romans 4, internally inconsistent. Does God acquit the guilty and declare them to be righteous and just or not? See, that's a problem that comes up in the text. Let me show you a second problem. A second problem, really the problem that Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, wrestled with. Verse 16 of Romans 1, if you will. Or actually, let's just look to verse 17, Romans 1. Martin Luther wrestled with this text. He speaks, actually, of his wrestling with this text. Now, notice this in verse 17. For in it, what's it? It is the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek And for in it, what's it? The gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther asked this question. I want you to hear the question of the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, in the 1500s. He was really wrestling with this question um, from 1517 probably to 1521, 1516 to 1521, in that range. But Martin Luther is, here's the question. How is it good news? How is it that good news that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. How could that possibly be good news? I mean, wasn't he righteous enough in the Old Testament? Now Jesus shows the standard is even more elevated? How is it good news that Jesus has come and revealed to us how righteous God is? See, if the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and if his righteousness is, if his righteousness is his own complete consistency with his own gloriously perfect and moral being, and if his righteousness is demonstrated in all his covenantal acts and promises and threatenings, and if he is a God who has declared that he will not acquit the guilty, then how can Paul say we should trust him who justifies the ungodly? How can he say that we should trust him who declares righteous those who are not? And how could the gospel possibly be anything other than bad news if in the gospel God's righteous character is revealed? Do you hear the dilemma? Let me restate it this way. God created us perfect in Adam. In Adam, we all fell into sin. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Through our corporate head and representative Adam, we all became sinners. We all became sinners by nature. That means our very being is sinful. That means you can't go back to your identity and say, well, this is who I am. Well, who you are is what needs to be repented of. Because God doesn't just cast your sin into hell. He casts you into hell. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We all fall short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans 3.23. None of us stand up to his righteous standard. God is holy and God is perfect and God is just. His righteousness guarantees that he will act in accord with his own character. And his character abhors evil and abhors those who commit evil, Psalm 5. Therefore, he will not make a declaration that we are just or righteous when we are not. He will not. Indeed, he cannot. God, because he is righteous, is incapable, you hear that? Unable to act or to make declarations inconsistent with his own character. God cannot lie. He's truth at his in his character, he cannot act inconsistently with that. God cannot make false declarations. So, God cannot call wicked people righteous. Therefore, God cannot call an evil man righteous. And if the gospel is that Jesus came to show us how consistently holy and morally perfect God is, then how is the announcement of the gospel good news? Are you seeing the problem yet? How do we resolve the problem? How do we resolve it? God will not and cannot act or make declarations that are unrighteous or unjust. Now, how did the church begin to try to resolve it? In the medieval period, which medieval refers to the Middle Ages, between the ancient church and the Reformation. In the medieval period, some of the Roman Catholic priests, some, not all, some of the Roman Catholic priests, had begun to answer this question by saying that we must reach a point where God can justly declare us righteous. To simplify it, they would say this. God offers us grace through faith in Christ to work toward becoming righteous enough that we, in fact, can be declared righteous according to His holy standard. You guys follow that? God will forgive your sins as you show proper penance and go to confession and participate in acts of contrition. Acts of contrition would be things like saying your Hail Marys or your our fathers. Further, God will give you more grace toward growing to the point where you are righteous enough to be declared righteous. Where righteousness inheres in you enough to be declared righteous. If you participate regularly in the Mass... And the various sacraments of the church. Now you will never. You will never likely reach. Justification in this life. So you will probably need to go to purgatory. For some time. To burn out the remaining unrighteousness. But there is some help for purgatory too. You can reduce time in purgatory. By visiting the relics of dead saints. And praying to them. And getting some of the extra holiness that they did not need. Because they had more holiness than they needed. And that was deposited in the treasury of merit. That's what they call it. And when you visit their dead body parts or whatever. Or you pray to them. Then you can withdraw from the treasury of merit. And have some of that counted to you. So that you spend less time in purgatory. You could also buy indulgences. That's what came out with Luther. In fact, when Luther was first assaulted by this, he was okay with indulgences, but they had become so gross. This is where, essentially, the church was declaring to you from the Pope that if you go and give money so they can, beat, so they can build St. Peter's Basilica, which is now there in the Vatican, which you see every year when they, when they show you on the news inside, so they could build that building, what you would do is you would give money and in exchange for your money, you or your loved ones would get time out of purgatory. They called it buying indulgences. There was one particular man who grossed Luther out, named Johann Tetzel, who would come, he came into Wittenberg, or just outside of Wittenberg where Luther was, and started saying, every time the coin, a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. It's a nice limerick, isn't it? I don't know if it sounds that good in German, but there it is. So for Rome, God forgives you because of the work of Jesus applied to you by grace through faith as you participate in the sacraments of the church. But your sins after that cause you to face damnation or at least spend time in purgatory depending on the severity of the sin, whether it was a mortal sin or a venial sin. Trusting in Jesus does not bring you justification. It is only after you've reached true righteousness in life and via purgatory or the purchase of indulgences that God will declare you righteous. So in the Roman Catholic system, you may after baptism or confession and penance be forgiven or justified, but then you are only where Adam was before the fall because you are forgiven or justified and innocent until your next sin. Hear that? So for the Roman Catholic, when they go to Mass, when they go to confession, they walk out justified until their next sin, which for most of us is probably lunch. (laughs) You are forgiven and innocent until your next sin. The gospel becomes the teaching that Jesus brings you forgiveness for sins until your next sin. Jesus does not bring you the promise of heaven unless you trust in him, participate in the sacraments consistently, and spend some time in purgatory, unless, of course, the pope has canonized you, in which case you skipped purgatory and went straightly to, straight to go, right? Went No going to jail for you. In other words, for Rome, you must actually become righteous before God can declare you righteous. And given what we've seen, I want you to, before you come down on Rome and these medieval priests in judgment, I want you to stop and consider that given what we've seen in God's own word that he does not declare righteous, the unrighteous, or the wicked, Rome's theology makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That's why Rome would call the Protestant gospel a legal fiction, that you're having God from his mouth declare something that's not true, that God is becoming a liar calling you wicked people righteous. In fact, it is true in Scripture that God will be consistent with his character and he will not declare righteous the unrighteous. But here's the question. And here's the problem for Rome. In the Roman gospel, you never have the problem with verse 5 of chapter 4, and the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, to that one his faith is counted as righteousness. Never have that problem in the Roman gospel. What do we do with Romans 4 5? Is the Roman system good news? If God's law is a standard, and if God expects perfect fulfillment of that standard, and if Jesus is the example of what perfect holiness looks like, and if God will not acquit those who failed to reach the standard of righteousness that Jesus provided, then will some help, like the Roman Gospel offers, will some help be enough? Enter the Roman Catholic monk, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German Augustinian monk in the 1500s. Now, he was born prior to that, but his ministry was during the 1500s. He came to see um, this turn in the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church as deeply problematic, this medieval turn he thought was problematic. He himself believed and taught this Roman Catholic view for many years. In fact, even when the 95 Theses were posted on the Wittenberg door, go and read those on October 31st, 1517, what we call Reformation Day. Even when those were posted, Martin Luther was still believing the medieval Roman Catholic gospel. He was having problems with the way it was being applied by the papacy and by the church, but he was still believing the Roman Catholic gospel. It isn't until 1521 that Luther finally becomes incredibly clear that he's rejecting the Roman Catholic gospel, most likely at the Diet of Worms. He had believed and taught this view for many years, but he realized that this gospel was no gospel at all. He realized it wasn't good news. He actually wrestled with Romans one seventeen. that phrase in Romans one seventeen, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He poured over the text and he tried to be righteous enough. And the more he tried, why do you want to be righteous enough? Because the righteousness of God is revealed. And if that's talking about the character of God, then I got to work even harder to reach it. And the more he tried, the more he felt Condemned. As he tried to love God more, he actually says of himself that he began to hate God more. Here's what Luther said reflecting on his own experience with regard to Romans 1. I had been captivated with a remarkable ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up until then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single saying in chapter 1. And here's the saying, in it the righteousness of God is revealed that stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God. Which according to the use and custom of the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically as the formal or act of justice, as they called it, by which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unrighteous. And though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I did not love Indeed, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. But a change happened for Luther. Change happened for him. He came to understand Romans one sixteen through 17 in a particular way. He came to see the gospel is good news... Because it, the good news, is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And the reason the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe is because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But that righteousness is not about God's righteous character being displayed to us so that we may despair. But that righteousness is a righteousness being given to us by faith. So you realize this isn't about God's character being displayed when it says in it the rights of God is revealed. This is about a foreign righteousness, Christ's righteousness, being given to us by faith. That righteousness is a righteousness being given to us by faith. It is given to us, as the NIV I think rightly translates, by faith from first to last. They're capturing the sense. It really is from faith for faith is revealed from faith for faith, but I think the NIV catches the sense from, from faith from first to last. For the Bible has always said that the just or the righteous, look at the end of that phrase in verse 17, as it is written, that's pointing back to Habakkuk, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, which I think is more properly translated, the righteous through faith or by faith shall live. And we need this righteousness by faith because we are sinners. We need this righteousness through faith in the gospel because we're sinners. Look at Romans 1:18. Why do we need this righteousness from God? For the wrath of God is revealed. See, that's why we need it. For because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, we need a foreign righteousness. Luther came to see that the gospel is good news because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe because we need a righteousness outside of ourselves given to us because we are wicked and the wrath of God abides on us. And the only way we receive that foreign righteousness is through faith in Christ. He goes on, look at chapter three, Paul does and verse nine. What then are we Jews any better off? In other words, we comparing the righteousness of Jews and Gentiles saying Jews and Gentiles are all unrighteous. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's Jews and everybody else, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what's the declaration on of us because of that? Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's what's going to happen. When you stand before God, you're not going to say, let me tell you what I think about things. Let me tell you why my suffering was actually more harmful than my sin. That's not what's going to come out of your mouth. Your mouth is going to be stopped. Before the holiness of God. And you will be held accountable. Verse 24. By works of the law. No human being. None. No human being will be justified. Declared righteous in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See now it's fine to say that this righteousness is a gift. We receive by faith. But where did Luther get that idea? Where did he get it? And more importantly is Luther right. Look at Romans 3.21. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Notice Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the righteousness that is being manifested, revealed in the gospel, is not manifested in the Old Testament. It was written about in the Old Testament. It was promised in the Old Testament, just as Paul says in Romans 1.17, as it is written, and as he says here, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, but it wasn't manifested there. But now, he says, notice that verse 21, but now it's manifested. So what is this righteousness of God that is now manifested? Is it his character? Look at verse 22 of chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ, for all who believe. And who is this righteousness being given to? All who believe. And why do all who believe need this gift of righteousness? Look at the rest of verse 22. For there is no distinction. For all is sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. None is just. None is good. We're all unrighteous. We're all sinful. So there's the dilemma. We are all unrighteous. There's our problem. We cannot be declared just in and of ourselves or righteous in and of ourselves. No matter how many works of the law we try to participate in, we will never be righteous and be able to be declared by God righteous in and of ourselves. Ever. Ever. A little bit of help isn't going to get us there. So what's the answer? We're forgiven our sins and declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 3, 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified. Declared righteous, forgiven by his grace. There's the motivation. As a gift. You didn't do anything. You received a gift. Through the redemption, the purchasing back from slavery to sin, that is in Christ Jesus, He purchased this for us. Whom God, who's, uh, Whom Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, that is someone who pays the wrath due to you. He satisfied God's wrath against you. To be received, how? By faith. We are justified, forgiven, and declared righteous by his grace as a gift. The justice due to us for our sins, the justice due to us for our sins was satisfied by Christ's death and the shedding of his blood on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God due to us for our sin. And in him we're justified. Do you hear it? Are you hearing the solution to the problem? Let me press it further. Your justification is caused by God's grace alone. And it is through the redemption that is in Christ alone. Thus your justification is grounded upon Christ alone. Not anything in you. You didn't do anything to add to it. You cannot add anything. God's righteous character requires that he punish your sin. God cannot and will not justify, declare righteous, the wicked. If God does declare the ungodly or the wicked to be righteous, then God is not just, and this is why He sent His Son. We have to capture this. We have to get a hold of it. Jesus is the key to all this. God does not just look down upon wicked and ungodly folks and sort of wave His hand and say, You're forgiven. I'm just a forgiving God. You're forgiven. You're righteous. That would be injustice. He is required by his own righteous character to punish all sin. He is required by his own righteous covenantal promises to punish all ungodliness. He is required by his own holy and true word to not call righteous that which is unrighteous. So how are we saved? Through faith in Christ. And why does God save us in Christ? Look at Romans three twenty-five to 26. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It's talking about his patience. He had passed over the sins of Old Testament saints as they looked forward to Christ, but Christ had not yet come. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He might be righteous and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God saved us in Christ And in doing so, God showed his own righteousness. Because if he had saved you in and of yourself, he would have been unrighteous. But by saving you in Christ, he is righteous. He is just. And he can justify you. Now that Jesus came, God is shown to be just in justifying the Old Testament saints as well. As they looked forward to him. He is showing as righteous as the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I, I, I hope you're hearing this. How can God forgive us and declare us righteous when we are guilty and wicked without being unjust himself through Jesus. Jesus is the key to solving the problem I began this sermon with. How can God say he does not justify the wicked and Paul say that we ought to trust him who does justify the ungodly? Jesus is the key to understand that. But what does that mean? Let me go back. We all fell in Adam. Adam. Our first representative, Adam, sinned. And in him, we all became unrighteous, ungodly, wicked sinners. How can we now be declared righteous? Because Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, came. As Paul says in Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, that's Jesus' act of righteousness, leads to justification in life for all men. See, Jesus kept the precept. That was all the righteous commands of the law in our place. It was necessary that Jesus keep the law in our place because we failed to. And he kept the penalty of the law in our place by having the penalty of Our failure to keep the law poured out on himself. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus kept the law perfectly and sinlessly for us, and then Jesus paid the penalty due to us on the cross. Then Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus was declared righteous, vindicated. And when we believe in him, I want you to hear this, when we believe in him, We're united to him by the Spirit and forgiven our sins and credited with his righteousness. So here's why it's not a legal fiction. If God was declaring you in and of yourself to be righteous, it would be a legal fiction. God would be declaring something true that is untrue. He would be a liar. But it's not God declaring you righteous in and of yourself. It's God declaring Jesus to be righteous, and that's true. And when God unites you to Christ by his spirit, you're in him. And I want you to hear this, believers. Before God, you were every bit as righteous as Jesus. Every bit as righteous as Jesus. Because you're in him. And God's declaration is about him and you are caught up and united together with him through faith by the Spirit. When we believe in him, we're united to him by the Spirit and forgiven our sins and credited with his righteousness. The righteousness of God is a righteousness we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a righteousness that was announced and promised in the Old Testament as we hear in Romans 1.17 and Romans 3.21 and frankly all of Romans 4. It is Christ's righteousness. It is a foreign righteousness, not our own. It is a righteousness that is forensic, a legal declaration about us. It's a righteousness that is free. It's not something we earn, but that's poured out on us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, doesn't it? For our sake, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So how do I receive that righteousness of God? How do you receive Christ's righteousness? It is a righteousness that is credited to us, imputed to us through faith alone. Through faith alone. Faith is the alone instrument of justification. Look at Romans three twenty two Again, The righteousness of God through faith. Notice that. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Look at Romans 3.25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. How? By faith. Look at Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at Romans 4.5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness. Look at Romans 4:22. That is why his faith was counted as righteousness speaking about Abraham. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Or to go back from where we to where we started, look at Romans 1. The passage that Luther struggled with. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed. That's a way of saying I am proud. Of the gospel. It's like, you know, when... Your, your wife says, how do I look? And you say, not bad. You're really saying, you look good, right? For I'm not ashamed. I'm proud of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith faith. From first to last, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther actually went on to write about what happened when he finally came to understand this passage in Romans. Here's what Luther said. It's interesting. Finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who th- through faith is righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives, by a gift of God, namely by faith. This then is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed in, in the, by the gospel, and here's what it is. The passive righteousness, in other words, a righteousness which I'm passively receiving, with which the merciful God declares us righteous, justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous one lives by faith. And here's what he says. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered, had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of all of Scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. So we are justified, declared righteous through faith alone in Christ alone. And this teaching, sola fide, faith alone, is what is called the material cause, the substance, the stuff of the Protestant Reformation. But before I conclude this sermon, I need to answer this question. What is faith? What is faith? The reformers referred to faith as the alone instrument of our justification, but what did they mean by an instrument? Well, Luther called faith, when he talked about an instrument, he called it an empty hand. We are merely sinners who stand with an empty hand which God fills with the good gifts of grace through Christ. Thus, faith is looking to resting upon and receiving Christ as your righteousness. Faith is trusting God's declaration that if you believe in his son, then as 1 John says, as he is, so also are we in this world. Think of that. I want to be clear here. Faith is not not a virtue that is self-generated. Faith is a gift you received. Faith contributes no merit. It is an instrument of receiving the merit of another. Faith is not a good work. Faith looks outside itself to another. As the 19th century Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield said, and I think said beautifully and powerfully, the saving power of faith resides thus not in itself but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. It is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. And it is not strictly speaking, listen to this, it is not strictly speaking even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ who saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith, or the attitude of faith, or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. We could not more radically misconceive it than by transferring to faith even the smallest fraction of that saving energy which in the scriptures is attributed wholly to Christ himself. See, we're saved by Christ. Christ is our salvation through faith. And faith is relying upon another, upon Christ. In Christ there is what you would call a double imputation. What we sang earlier of a double cure for sin. Saves from wrath and makes me pure. Jesus has my sin imputed or credited to his account And I have Jesus' righteousness imputed and credited to my account. Luther, borrowing Paul's language, spoke of this like marriage. What he says is, when we trust in the groom and are united to him, or married to Jesus, through faith, we receive all that is his, and he receives all that is ours. This is why Luther and the Reformers would declare that we are simultaneously justified and sinner. In and of ourselves, we are sinners. Through faith in Christ, we are righteous. They understood that the gospel humbles us and causes us to look outside of ourselves to another. In fact, look at what it says in Romans 3:27 in 3:27. "Then what becomes of our boasting? See, where, where does our looking to ourselves or boasting go? What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, forgiven and declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Where is our boasting? Our boasting in ourselves or our works is excluded. Our only boast is Christ. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And this not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no man should boast. First Corinthians, at the end of chapter 1, God is the source of your life. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here then is the biblical gospel proclaimed by the Protestants and here is the reason that we remain in protest. The cause of your salvation is the grace of God alone. The ground of your salvation is Jesus Christ alone. The instrument of your salvation is faith alone. And the necessary consequence, hear this, the necessary consequence of all this is your good works. Yes, good works are necessary, but hear how they're necessary. They're necessary as a consequence of your salvation in Christ. We are justified by faith alone, the reformers would say, but they went on to say, but not by a faith that remained alone. But beware, good works, good works do not add to your justification. They result from And evidence your justification which comes through faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Because when you received Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, the Spirit united you to Christ and all his saving graces. So that we can and we must sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean or trust in Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless I stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we ask, that Your Son would be greatly exalted in our lives, that we would trust in Him, that we would know that He is our righteousness, that we were in the first Adam. And by grace through faith in Christ, we are now in Christ the second Adam, the last Adam. And that while we were condemned in Adam, we are justified in Christ. We pray For those who do not believe in you, who are not trusting in you, Father, that you would give them ears to hear the good news, that Jesus alone is their righteousness, that he, because of your great love, came to seek and save them as lost people. They would turn to you in faith and be saved. They would look to your son and rely upon and rest in him and him alone. Father, pray for those of us who are believers, who have saving faith. We pray that you would strengthen us in our faith. For those who are struggling with weakness in faith, Father, that you would give them more grace to strengthen them. So they might ever more trust in and rely upon and rest in your son, Jesus Christ. Pray that for all of us. That he would be the constant meditation of our hearts. That he would be constantly on our minds. That he would be constantly coming from our lips. That we would sing his praises. Knowing that on Christ, the solid rock we stand. And that all other ground that our hearts search for and run to is nothing but sinking sand. Pray that we trust in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.